live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts. It's the Fred Obi Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. It's about the universal experiences that happen when you're a parent. You got one kid working harder than the other. Try out for this team, parents having to cut a check for this activity or that activity, and you got seven days in a week and 24 hours. Well, today we are doing an interview with, with Adam Silver and his wife Jennifer, both West Point graduates. They're involved in many aspects of their children's lives, and they've seen many of the things that you are going through from different perspectives, and they're going to share theirs. So take a listen to Adam and Jennifer Silver talking about the experience of being a parent, player, and a student-athlete. My experience back in 1989 or 88 uh, was during my senior year. So it was late compared to the situation today, it seems like, with recruiting. Uh, I was out in California, and it was actually an alum, a West Point alum, that saw me play and let the volleyball coach know, and then sent a tape, and then watched me at a tournament, and then that's how the recruiting process happened for me. All of it was in my senior year, which to me is the biggest difference between how things were then and how they are now. I went to Meade High School in Anne Arundel County in Maryland, uh, right there on the base. It's a civilian school, but on the military base. And I literally couldn't get coaches to, to watch me. And so I took a different approach to the recruiting process, and I decided to recruit them. Lucky to have an administrator at our school who knew Richie Meade, uh, who was, uh, many people know him now as the head coach at Furman. And I was introduced to Richie uh, informally and literally went to a game, uh, Navy, Virginia, at Rip Miller Field at the Naval Academy, hopped the fence at the end of the game and handed him a handwritten resume <laughs> and a letter that said, I desperately want to play lacrosse for you. Then, ironically, in a strange twist of fate, I ended up going to West Point and playing lacrosse there. And he was our uh, assistant coach starting my sophomore year. In parallel to that, I was lightly recruited to play soccer at Army, but again, because I had reached out to the coach, uh, and that was the process that I followed was the recruiting process for soccer. So technically, I was a walk-on at West Point and ended up playing for Coach Emmer and Coach Mead. For me, it was a little bit different in that I was more proactive than, than reactive, if you will. Uh, Jennifer, I hear that you went kicking and screaming to the point. Is this true? Uh, I had to visit a couple times to make sure it was for me. I, my criteria was I wanted to go to the best academic school I could, and I utilized volleyball to get there. But yeah, I was not sure. I realized that you don't just try it out and transfer if you don't like it. It's quitting. I decided that I didn't want to be a quitter and ended up it was a really good decision for me. Did it take a while after you were there for you to be all in? It took probably after the first summer where it's like boot camp. Once I got over that and then got into my season, then I felt at home and decided to stay. Did you get the academic rigor that you so desired? Yes, I did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely got that. Cool. And what are the other schools you applied to? So my number one school actually was uh, Berkeley. I ended up not getting in there. I was going to walk on the volleyball team. I was looking at UC Davis as well for volleyball, but my dream school was Berkeley, and I didn't get in there. And so then I went a total opposite spectrum and went to West Point. And no, math was uh, and sciences were not my thing, and that was part of my hesitation um, going to a 
uh, an engineering school, but um, kicking and screaming into those math classes, I, I ended up doing okay. And, and Adam, how were you academically, and what other schools did you apply to? Well, my father was in the Army. Uh, my grandfather was in the Army. We, I was raised for several years on a military base at Fort Meade, Maryland. And so I had an affinity for the academies. We were also not financially well off when I was a kid. And so the financial aspect of going to an academy played heavily for me. The desire to play Division I sports, whether it was soccer or lacrosse, was a big deal for me. I applied to Loyola and got in, had an ROTC scholarship through the Army, applied to Wake Forest, did not get in. I was waitlisted. But once I got my acceptance to Navy and Army, uh, it was an easy choice for me to choose one, of the, one, one or the other. So why did you choose West Point over, over Navy? It was a, a coin flip, to be honest, between Army and Navy because I was raised in the shadow of the Naval Academy. I look at West Point as, as just, again, I'm biased, but it's, it's the greatest institution on the face of the planet. And so for me, the decision was, was kind of easy. People who go to the academies go as legacy uh, students. That is, somebody they knew went to the academy, a family member, or in your case, Adam, your father was in the military. Did you all indoctrinate? I'm thinking of Tiger Woods' dad, who they say put the, uh, the golf club and the ball in the crib, like by osmosis, boy, this is what you're going to do. <laughs> tell, tell, tell me about your son. Did, did it, he just grows up around it, or at what point did he start saying, Mom and Dad, I want to do this? I agree with that statement about uh, the legacy part. My father actually went to West Point, so there was familiarity, even though he wasn't in the military when I was a teenager, there was familiarity, and I think that's the key. If you have an uncle or, or a father or aunt, whatever the case may be, it's just something, um, it takes the, the unknown out of it, I guess. And, and Miles, our, our oldest, uh, we actually, through the recruiting process, made sure that he didn't feel pressure from us to go there, especially with both parents and a grandfather having gone there, there's kind of innate pressure to at least consider it. Every time we'd have a, a gathering with classmates, they would ask our kids, so are you, any of you considering it? And so it, I think it naturally happens, but we really tried to work hard to make sure he didn't feel pressure. But I would say he reminds us when he comes home now, we've got uh, West Point flags around and our, our diplomas. So he was kind of indoctrinated just that it, because it was such a, a big part of our life when we had kids. And so I think it, it naturally happens, but I think it's important to make sure, at least from a parent's perspective, that they go, it's got to be their own journey. Uh, what I find at West Point is literally a cross section of society. Mm -hmm. A lot of uh, firemen and cops seem to send their children that way. I think in the spirit of serving their country one way or another. But I, I would say that the assumption that there's some sort of legacy connection as a whole uh, wouldn't be accurate. Some of it may come down to finances. Some of it may come down to service. Uh, but the familiarity doesn't hurt either. And, and I'm saying to people, I've always told my kids this. If you have the opportunity to be an officer, that's the way you want to go into the military. So here's this kid out there, male or female, who's in love with the military has got good grades, but doesn't know this is an option. Speak to that person. Well, that's a tough one, Fred, <clears throat> the, because I have mixed emotions with that. As the son of a sergeant major, meaning an enlisted guy, I can tell you that there is an affinity or an attraction for a lot of kids out there to join the military and enlist, and I don't think that's an easier path. I think it's a path where they want to do. 
uh, as opposed to lead and manage. And, you know, officers in the military are responsible for be, know, and do, but at the same time, you know, you're there to lead and manage. And so a lot of kids will look at the military and say, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be a manager. I don't want to be the leader of the unit. I, I want to go in and do. And so you, especially when you look at, you know, if you're going to go special operations, if you want to train to become a Navy SEAL, an Army Ranger, a Green Beret, Marine Force Recon, you know, those guys are a special and rare breed and they just want to get after it. And so college for them, it, it may not be in the cards now, but more often than not, you find those elite warriors choosing that path and then eventually uh, achieving their bachelor's degree and in some cases masters and PhDs and so I look at it as just a different path um, more than anything whatever the choice is whether it's enlist or academy or civilian college they've got to want it I mean that to me is the critical factor in in all of this and I tell kids all the time if you're looking at the academies VMI the Citadel Norwich you know whatever it may be you got to want it because if you think it's hard when you, as you're going through the process, imagine how hard it is to be there and not want it. And so it really comes down to what those kids want. And then the leaders and mentors in their life, if they have them, kind of guiding them along the path. One thing I'd add, I guess, to this is uh, no matter what, the, obviously that student you were talking about had a great GPA in order to get in. Um, even with that said, I think there's some benefits sometimes to students having experience outside the classroom, whether it's in the military or some service or gap year, whatever the case may be. And in in, in the case of the military, they, they really get tested, they mature, they uh, find themselves in a different setting and then go back and really, as students, they're head and shoulders above some of the students that go straight in. So I see sometimes uh, some real positives. Having run an education program here at Wounded Warrior Project, those students were just really prepared and just more mature. So you, you have this young uh, student, possibly student athlete, and they're just not applying themselves, not making good decision. What do you say to that parent? Yeah, I mean, I think we have one of those. Yeah, right. He's at West Point right now. <laughs> have patience and some understanding. I think the stories are infinite of men and women who come out of high school completely lost, disinterested in academics and the whole idea of higher education, join the military, do two, three, four years, and then either get out and go to school or go to school while in the military and absolutely kill it in the classroom. You know, if we sent them there at 18 or 19, they may struggle, drop out, and Lord knows where they end up. But I know of a ton of men and women that we've worked with here at WWP that I know personally that take that, you know, two, three, four year time period, go mature in the military, and then they come out and they literally change the world. I think it makes a whole lot of sense. I know both of you have, uh, have done coaching. Adam, you describe yourself as a uh, Joe Ehrman disciple. What does that mean in terms of parenting and coaching for you? And then, Jennifer, the same thing. What does it mean to be a Joe Ehrman disciple? What have you gleaned from his work and his writing? I'm a big believer in being part of a cause greater than yourself, whether that's the team you're on, um, the family you're in, or service to your country, et cetera. Um, and when I was coaching, um, I coached girls, girls volleyball, and I, I, the number one thing was obviously teaching them to be part of a team, but also 
um, accountability in requiring them to be advocates for themselves. So I would not really um, talk about playing time or anything else with parents. Um, I would talk about their child's welfare or whatever, but it had, I wanted, I was passionate about teaching these girls to come to me because I'm a, I could be a future employer or a future teacher, whatever the case may be, and they have to learn to advocate and have a voice. That was probably my number one focus. They were middle school girls and, and high school girls at the time. Um, I got a copy of Jeffrey Marx's book entitled Season of Life, and it's a story about Joe Ehrman, uh, his experiences in the Gilman football team, and it literally changed my life, not just as a coach, but as a father, as a husband, uh, as a, a leader at work, as a manager, as a friend. Um, I don't pretend for a second to be perfect or flawless when it comes to the application of the principles that I learned in that book but I've done everything I can over the last 10 or 11 years to try to emulate what I was taught uh, by Jeffrey and, and Joe. And then the second book was uh, Inside Out Coaching, which was written by Joe and Paula Ehrman. Um, and again, another life-changing experience for me. And what I've come to believe uh, and what I've been taught is that life comes down to three things, relationships, the ability to love and be loved, commitment to a transcendent cause or a cause greater than yourself, and then living by a code of conduct. And so as a coach and as a father and as a husband, that's what we talk about. I spent the last five months with the Ponte Vedra High School football team on the coaching staff. I know absolutely nothing about football. And the head coach there, Matt Toblin, who I think is an amazing guy on and off the field, allowed me to come in and work with the team and talk about those three principles and then expand upon them. And so for me, it's not just about sports. It's not just about lacrosse. It's about everything. And I've tried to, you know, practice those principles at work with my friendships, uh, with my family. And it's literally been, like I said, a life-changing experience. Jennifer, what can you tell me about that experience from the coaching perspective, but also what you remember playing, how that the biological changes affect a female student-athlete? And then uh, I'd love to hear, Adam, what you think about for, for young men. You know, the danger in coaches not recognizing that there could be different uh, growth periods is the kids who are in middle school or right before the puberty happens get pegged into a position and don't learn the skills um, that really maybe are more appropriate when they have grown three inches and, uh, you know, they're stronger, et cetera, in maybe 10th, 11th, or 12th grade. I saw that a lot in boys. I see that more in boys actually now because some of the girls I coach actually grew pretty early um, and were done pretty much by 10th grade where some of the boys really are growing into their senior year. That in addition to the whole uh, biological changes impacting um, the way that they approached playing mentally and emotionally, you have, it's they're different in my opinion than uh, coaching boys. I think you should make it maybe a little more fun than you might have to worry about with boys. There needs to be a social aspect to it. And then when you're coaching them, understanding that you should open the lines of communication so they can talk to you, voice their opinions about things. And um, I think girls um, do well with that. You may have to give reasoning to things and, and allow them to express their opinions about certain things. The show will be right back. For related content on negotiating the world of school and sports, visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. 
The best way to support the podcast is to tell a friend. Share the show on Facebook and Twitter or send them to our website at fredopi.com. Let me take this opportunity to announce that my next book, entitled Super 7, Principles to Grow, Win with People, and Be More Creative, is about to roll out. The Super 7, Principles to Grow, Win with People, and Be More Creative. This book shares the principles that I have used to transform my life. It's a book that will help you in terms of managing your schedule, communication, dealing with criticism, learning how to give criticism, learning how to organize yourself. There are some tremendous things that I have learned along the way. That's what's in that book. I'm excited for that bad boy to drop, and it's going to be happening very soon as an audio book a Kindle, and a hard copy. So that'll be coming out soon. We'll have some pre-sale set up in the weeks to come. Welcome back to this edition of The Fred Opie Show, unpacking history to positively impact the future. Uh, Mike Weisick is the strength coach for the Dallas Cowboys. He was my strength coach at Syracuse. Your upper body should sue your lower body for a lack of support. <laughs> I'm very passionate about this because I struggled as a young man, soft, pudgy. You know, I, I grew wide before I grew tall. And so as a freshman in high school, you know, I was five foot, nine inches tall, probably weighed about 180 pounds. And then I graduated from high school at six foot three, 180 pounds. My son, Miles, a similar uh, experience. He was a five foot nine, 185 pound freshman and graduated from high school at 6'5", 185 pounds. I think that one of the most dangerous things that we do as coaches and parents with young men, especially in the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, is that we pigeonhole them. We put them in a box, and we say, you're an offensive tackle. You're a defenseman. You're a goalie, whatever it is. And we basically abdicate our responsibility to develop them both mentally and physically as whole human beings. Um, I know fully well that if I would have been recruited as a freshman in high school, I would have never played college lacrosse. And I know full well that my son would not be a plebe on the West Point lacrosse team right now if the same were said of him. What we tried to do with our kids was simply develop them mind, body, and spirit holistically, as opposed to saying, you're going to be this or you're going to be that and put them in a box. And I think it's a dangerous, dangerous thing. I'll also go the other way. We oftentimes overindulge the kid who grew too soon or grew early. And we tell the eighth grader, you're going to be an All-American. You're going to be a defenseman at Hopkins or Syracuse. And then all of a sudden, in ninth or tenth grade, that young man peaks. And so we've done him a disservice because we haven't prepared him or her for the eventual reality of you may not be 6'3", 210 pounds. And right now, as you know, it's so ultra competitive to be a Division One athlete. And so I think that there's a broken construct here, especially as it comes to physical development with both boys and girls. One of the things that I think is, un- is, is happening is that you get these kids who are making these verbal commitments as they're rising freshmen or sophomores. What I see subconsciously happening with the coaches, whether it be club coach, high school coach, or parents is, you expect that same work ethic from that kid. And I can tell you, I didn't start playing until eighth grade and running on my own and lifting weights on my own. That didn't happen until probably I went to Syracuse. So that has been a challenge. Have you all seen the same thing down in Florida where you are? 
definitely. The recruiting system in general has gotten earlier and earlier in terms of the requirement. I don't know where this, the chicken or the egg, whether it's the colleges or the institutions or the coaches or the parents or the the children, but it's ridiculous, in my opinion, to have uh, kids that are so young making decisions about where they want to go to school and they haven't maybe had their first day of high school classes. We've seen it. I think to then expect them to act old enough or in, in mature, like you said, with work ethic, I don't think I lifted weights. I know I didn't really until um, college. And my work ethic in college was head and shoulders above my um, high school work ethic. Um, and I was, you know, kind of fully committed. I was a, a more mature senior at the time. You cannot expect the same work ethic from a kid, I, I think. But it's a grind that starts early, the whole recruiting system and, and getting to the right tournaments, getting on the right teams, and it's starting earlier and earlier. And uh, some of them actually, in addition to maybe not having the work ethic, they may be burned out by junior year. It's a it's an interesting time. We saw it with our our older son um, and with our younger son now, who's very interested as well, is just, it's, I'm not sure what the answer is, but it is, it's kind of fascinating. Can you, as a parent, can you respond to what's going on by saying, I'm going to pull them. I'm going to keep them out of this rat race. I'm not doing the club teams. I'm not doing the travel every weekend. I'm not doing dropping a thousand dollars into this tournament, that tournament, this clinic, that clinic, this strength conditioner. Can you, can you do that? and still have a successful uh, experience for your child as a, as a young student athlete? Do you decide I'm bowing out of craziness or do you moderate the craziness? What's your take? The first thing is it's really a familial decision. Uh, I, I can't give advice to people that I don't know when I don't know the, the circumstances that surround their lives, but I'll share with you our approach. Uh, when our son got to high school, when our daughter got to high school, you know, we forced my son to play football. And, and when I say football, it's because he didn't want to play soccer and he didn't want to run cross country. So, you know, our attitude was you're going to play more than one sport. And then our decision as a family was when you're a football player in football season, you're not playing lacrosse. We made one concession for a club tournament at the end of each of those football seasons because it was local and because his friends were going and he wanted to go. But we basically uh, told him to put the stick away. And a lot of parents don't get that. They feel pressure not to do that. But our attitude was, first of all, you know, skipping four months of lacrosse is not going to make any difference whatsoever in the long run. Number two, we didn't want him burned out. Number three, we didn't want him exposed to the potential injuries that occur from repetitive use of the same joints in the same sport in the same process. And more than anything, Fred, we wanted our kids exposed to other coaches, other kids, other relationships, other causes greater than self. And I was also taught by Kevin Cassis a few years ago in a great conversation that he loves multi-sport athletes because more often than not, not always, but more often than not, that second or third sport you play, you're not the superstar. So you got to learn to put your ego aside and be committed to that team as potentially a role player or a bench guy or a practice guy. And we wanted our, our kids to learn those lessons and not always be the superstar and the finisher and the All-American. I love that. Well, as you were talking, I'm thinking about the year I made the U.S. national team was the summer of 1989. I'm down in New York. I'm a public school teacher at Hempstead High School. I'm playing uh, lacrosse. So I decide I'm going to go out for the New York Saints, which was the indoor team. Mm -hmm. of yeah. New York at that time. And then I also had been playing for Long Island Lacrosse Club, which had probably 
10 members of the U.S. national team that competed on that team. And I can tell you, we had about 10, 12 games for the New York Saints. And I dressed probably two out of the, out of the 10. I wasn't married that time. I was dating somebody. And the girl told me, the girlfriend told me I was the most miserable sucker to be around. <laughs> but it gave me the ability to be much more empathetic as a coach for the players who weren't getting a lot of playing time. So I think being second fiddle does have its amazing benefits. I, I agree with you 100%. Knowing what we know now about football-related hedge injuries, how do you all feel about football? Fred, are you trying to ru ruin Christmas dinner here with my wife and I? <laughs> the Opie household are having the same thing. And I don't know if I'm all in. I'm from, yeah. from parents, from friends of mine who I love and respect uh, a great deal, that football is a great way to get a child to learn team and not be an individual. And that's why they love it. They, no other sport, they say, does it. Uh, I played soccer. I played one year of high school football and then played soccer the rest of the time. Me and my wife are the same thing, and she's like, no, we ain't having it. My son has had one serious concussion. Don't want him playing. You know, I drop off my son at school, and here comes the football coach looking at this big kid sitting down at the table, and he's licking his chops and comes over and says, are you playing football? And my son looks up sheepish and goes, no, I'm playing. My parents want me to play soccer. <laughs> then I get a call. This is Coach such and such. I just want you to know. Uh, your son asked me to call and ask again, will you let him play football? So that's my situation. I want to hear what you guys think. I have seen the impacts of multiple concussions with the work that I've done with Wounded Warriors. I get worried about the long-term impact, both in cognitive abilities and emotional kind of lash outs. And so I actually... I'm not a huge fan of anything that might cause that, but I don't think it's just football. Obviously, the main goal or of every play in football, there is contact, so it is different than a lot of other sports. But I've seen a lot of girls get them um, in soccer and in other situations. So if the kid really, if our sons really want to play, I support it. Um, it but I will say, I would be very upset if they continued to play after a serious concussion um, for our kids. I, I just, I think there are a lot of ways to gain the team experience, although I do think football is unique um, because of the toughness and, and some of the things that you have to do uh, as a football player. Um, I do think it is a little bit unique, but I just long-term, um, I think it depends on the kid. If they're if they play the right way and they're not scared, you know, kind of. I think that can impact the way that they play it. But um, it's it's a constant battle. I don't know what the answer is, but I, I it's hard for me sometimes. Our son really likes to play. Our youngest, and so I'm supportive. Uh, my mother wouldn't let me play football, and so I was a soccer player throughout high school. My dad tore his knee up way back in the early '70s playing. Uh, semi-pro football for the Boston Whalers, and so she was terrified of the game. Had nothing to do with concussions. She just didn't want me in a leg cast, and and I I held on to that. And I still do, as you can probably hear, for a lot of years because I feel like I missed out to some extent. We have been absolutely blessed in our community with coaches from the youth programs to the middle school to the high school that teach kids the right way to play the game. Again, not just physically but emotionally as well. And part of that is you know the right way to tackle. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. 
The other thing, though, is with all of the concussion protocol that's going on now, you know, our, our kids had to do baseline testing. I think they went over here to the Mayo Clinic to get it done. Yeah. Uh, the coaches are much more aware. The training staff is much more aware. Uh, if our kids were ever in a situation where they suffered a concussion or multiple concussions, obviously football wouldn't be that important. But until that happens, I, I don't want to go into the game with fear, thinking that that is going to be the inevitable outcome. Uh, and again, I think that the benefits of being a high school football player for a young man far outweigh the risks. So that's been a family decision that we've made. Again, I would not dare to give anybody advice. I would not dare to push anybody in a certain direction. But I'm a huge multi-sport fan, and I'm also a huge football fan, even though I didn't play the game. I'm glad to see I'm not the only household that has a, a difference <laughs> of opinion on this. In another 10 years, we may look back and see football having gone the way of boxing. The lower classes, the less educated are going to be involved. The more educated folks who have more, more money are going to opt out. There is a gentleman you all may have uh, heard about in the state of Las Vegas, Nevada, who ran for the school board on a campaign to eliminate football from the school district. He, he did not win, but that was his initiative. And think about it. To him, he likened it to running as a candidate, arguing for eliminating tobacco on on school campuses. That, that's how we saw it. We know that there are legitimate challenges here, but yet we are participating in it. But I think it's a real issue. And I think people should at least engage in, in conversation about it to give some more thought, uh, more so than what we've done in the past. Most of us, our first child, we are experimenting on as parents. <laughs> and so what have you learned since the first one has gone off, and I, you know, I would count it as success, the fact that he is at West Point and thriving. What have you learned as parents from the first one to the other ones? What, what have you changed? What have you tweaked in your parenting? Uh, I think, I know it's a cliche, but I think it's a cliche because it happens a lot. Um, you know, you're real hard on the first one uh, because everything seems very important, whether it's uh, your sixth grade math test or, you know, eighth grade or, or 12th grade grades, et cetera. I, I think we have a little bit of uh, a broader perspective. Um, we, we still require um, work, a great work ethic and uh, good decisions from our children or their consequences. But um, I think we have a, a little more of a broader perspective um, that um, if this isn't your path for our younger ones, uh, then then you're going to find your path, and we kind of relax a little bit with that, or at least that's what our older one tells us every now and then. But um, he he was also a very uh, headstrong kind of uh, bull in a china shop kind of kid, um, and so it was it required different parenting um, choices, in my opinion, than um, our youngest, for instance, is a little more laid back. So I think just gaining that perspective has been helpful, especially with um, Adam coaching um, and both of us coaching. We, we've had to change that a little bit to enjoy the relationship of parent and child is much more important than whatever the relationship is as coach and player. I think we have learned a lot in that area. Yeah, one of my favorite sayings is don't let life get in the way of living. For us, one of the things that I think we've developed as parents is a bit more perspective. 
uh, and that not everything is as important as we thought it was. You know, our kids are not as smart or as dumb, as pretty or as ugly, as tall or as short, as fat or as skinny, as what X or as Y as we think they are. They're, they are who they are, and you got to kind of let go a little bit and let the process take control while at the same time focusing on building their character. Um, and you don't build character by making things easy. You build character by allowing them to fail, fail forward and learn lessons. And so for us, that's been a huge part of, of our parenting over the last couple of years. The other thing that I'll say, because, I mean, let's face it, Fred, we're on this phone call because we both have the connection of lacrosse. And I've been a fan of yours since the day you came into West Point and spoke to our FCA breakfast. But at the end of the day, sports has taken a disproportionate percentage of our time, effort, and energy as parents. If you are in it because you want your kid to get a college scholarship, then for the love of God, spend more time studying. Because yeah. there is vastly more money out there for good students than there are for good athletes. It would probably do the world a great service if we spent as much time on the sidelines of the classroom as we do the playing fields. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, has been one of the greatest tragedies that I've witnessed as a parent and as a coach is that we put a disproportionate amount of our excitement, energy, sadness, anger, whatever, into sports. And as I was taught by Joe Ehrman, sports is an uneven playing field. Mm. No matter what anybody says, at the end of the day, you got to have some genetic gifts that not, of us, not all of us are endowed with. And if you don't have them, you ain't going to get there. Mm. But you can always work harder in the classroom. One thing that I think Please. is important that we've learned is um, allowing your kids, when you said fail forward, Adam, uh, they, I think kids, and we've learned this, they need to do hard things, and that means failing at things, and I think, I think we make it hard to allow your kids to fail and don't shield them from the great things you learn about um, doing hard things, and so I think we require um, we give our kids a decent amount of freedom, um, partly because we know that they will be tested in decision making and whatever the case may be. And so we want them to sometimes fail at that and, and we coach them through that. I think doing hard things, kids gain confidence, they gain self-esteem, not from shielding them from that. And I think we have that whole equation backwards um, a lot of times. You know, Fred, I, I shared this with somebody a couple weeks ago because they asked me, what was the most important thing you learned from West Point? And, of course, they were expecting something about military or history or lacrosse. And my response was simple, and it was quick. I learned how to fail. And nobody ever thinks about that when they think of the United States Military Academy or Navy or Air Force or Coast Guard or the Citadel or VMI. They think that you're all a bunch of perfect, you know, ramrod straight, marching, you know, perfect this, that. And it's, no, you go there and you realize real quickly you're not all you thought you were. And you're going to have to work hard and you're going to experience failure on a, a regular basis. And it's how you deal with that failure that's really going to be the mark of your character. It's not succeeding all the time. It's quite the opposite. If failure was the best lesson at the point, I would have been an outstanding cadet. <laughs> <laughs> that's a wrap for this show. Thanks for listening. To hear more content like it, go to fredopi.com. If you have questions about advertising and sponsoring this show, contact us at fdopie at gmail.com. That's fdopie at gmail.com.